Take your Bibles and open to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're taking a break for a few weeks in our study of Mark to kind of do what we do every year's end and at the beginning of the year and take a few weeks just to pick up some, some loose ends and some pastoral oversight uh, insights that we need to do. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be doing some isolated standalone sermons that I trust will be an encouragement to you. But the passage we're looking at this morning is completely a result of my own devotional um, uh, trajectory of saying, where, where do I want my heart to be thinking and what do I want to be focusing on as I transition from one year to the next? And my heart gravitated, having been reading 1 Peter of late, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Just a few verses that we'll address this, this morning and uh, want to share a lot of my heart and I hope the content of this text. First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eight, Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might receive a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to the prayer, to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. How do you think about year's end and year's beginning? Most of you have no doubt heard of Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. I was introduced to those as a young man in high school and was shocked by their content. Between 1722 and 1723, he penned or used a quill to put these 70 resolutions together. Edwards was a preacher in the uh, church township of uh, New England of Northampton, arguably the most gifted preacher and most astute theologian that America has ever produced. Although, as I often say, when I talk to my British friends, there's always an argument because Edwards ministered before 1776. They say he was the greatest British theologian. He was on American soil. I think he's ours. So there you go. What's remarkable when you read these 70 resolutions, they're online, they're free PDF download. Please look at them this afternoon. What's remarkable to me is he began these resolutions when he was 19. And when you read these resolutions, they don't sound like the typical 19-year-old. I cannot commend the study of Edwards' works any higher. He, he is my favorite Dead guy. Uh, he is my, uh, my historical hero. Uh, so many things could be said for him. Even the end of his life where he was, he was kicked out of his church for treating communion as a holy ordinance only to be taken by believers. Served Indians with a sixth grade education, ultimately taking the presidency of Princeton and dying from a 
and a vaccination gone wrong. If you want to know more about him, by the way, you've looked at our 2019 reading list. Our own uh, Dr. Owen Strand has written an excellent book called The, Jonathan, the Essentials of uh, Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' Essentials. It, it's, it's a great overview. It's a summary and a, 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 a really synthesis of so much of, of what he's written and thought. Please, please put that on your reading list. Back to his resolutions, though. Edwards began all of these 70 resolutions with the word what? What was the first word? You've seen them? Resolved. Get this. The 70 resolutions were Jonathan Edwards making commitments to himself. The first of the resolutions is the fountain from which all the rest flow. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. We could stop right there and end in prayer, frankly. And I'm, uh, also to commit these, these uh, resolutions to my own good, my profit, my pleasure, in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. In other words, I want my life to be stamped by the glory of God. I want my life to be seen through the lens of the glory of God. In my estimation, the most important resolution is not the first one. Now, I have had wonderful, friendly debates with, with Edwardsian theologians and uh, 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 scholars, and this is always the fun one. What's your favorite or what you think the most important resolution is? My opinion, humbly presented, is it is his second resolution, which doesn't get much airplay. Here's what it says. Resolved to be continually endeavoring. Think about this to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention and contrivance to promote the aforementioned things. What is he saying? I'm committed to the glory of God, resolution one. I'm committed to the glory of God reflecting in my own good. But I'm also committed to what he calls inventions and contrivances. Those are big words for memories, reminders, it's one thing to have resolutions to yourself about the glory of God. It's something else to remind yourself about those resolutions and be committed to them. Well, my conviction, having gone through many December 31sts in my life, is that New Year's resolution time, the end of a new year and the beginning of, of, of a, uh, the end of an old year, the beginning of a new one, is really a contrivance. It's an invention. It's something that we can look to as a way to look at our own resolutions in the same way that Edwards did. I think sometimes Christians are cynical of resolutions. I looked again, I looked again, I looked again. And the number one resolution of 19, for, 19, for 2000, that was last century. My son says sometimes, yeah, that was back in the 1900s, as if I'm so old. For 2019 is, drum roll, to what? Lose weight. Makes me wonder if only a certain group of people are making resolutions. What is yours? Is it okay to have resolutions, promises? Absolutely. In fact, there's a sense in which we should make them all the time, but the more important thing is to do what Edward's second resolution encourages us. Go back and rehearse those to make sure that we are accountable to the promises that we have made to God before God and to ourself. 
There's no biblical concern with making end of the year, beginning of the year resolutions. Actually, there's a great biblical concern about keeping them. Ecclesiastes chapter five says, don't make a vow to God that you plan on breaking. Keep that in mind in the next few days. Now, a lot of impressions, uh, a lot of uh, people's first impressions of us are sometimes their lasting impression. You are going to make impression, indelible marks and impressions on people in this next year. And that's okay. The question is, what kind of impression are we going to make with them? How do we make an impression on others in a way that has the shadow of the glory of God overcoming it, overwhelming it? I just read an article recently on uh, if you're going into an interview to make sure that you leave uh, the right kind of impression. It was interesting. Uh, Appearance counts, look good, look groomed, look neat. Second, your clothes and accessories should be conservative and neutral. Third, your nonverbal communication uh, uh, conveys stronger messages than your verbal communication. Eye contact is important. Uh, the handshake sends a strong tactile message. Now, you gotta be careful with that. When I shake hands with, I don't know, let's just, let's just uh, for the sake of argument, say someone like, I don't know, John Schilling. You know, I feel like I'm a four-year-old. Um, has nothing to do with his big hands, but my tiny ones. Your voice and volume should convey strong impressions. Uh, your vocabulary reveals your community. On and on. All about how do you make a good and right first impression. Those may be good and helpful in a job interview. What kind of impression, though, are you making on believers, on unbelievers, and yes, even on God himself? If you look at the structure and the flow of First Peter, Beginning with chapter two, verse 13 and ending in chapter three, verse seven, Peter has been explaining the meaning of Christian submission. Submission to the governing authorities. Uh, submission with masters and slaves. Submission in marriage. He calls believers to make gospel points in our submission that show the gospel to be attractive through our submission. And the world would see a different kind of person who understands submission. Like I said, it's in the government, in the workplace, in our families. And then he says, at the end of this section on submission, to sum up in verse eight, to sum up. He's grabbing everything he said about having a proper view of your place and the pecking order of God's providence and understanding submission. And those of us who have positions of authority, the position of the people under us with submission. And he closes it all up. He sums it up with a new section addressing all his believers. He says, all of you. And he's gonna give some practical principles for living peacefully in a hostile and pagan culture. Remember the background of 1 Peter. He's writing to a suffering church. He's writing to a group of people who are, who are being persecuted for their faith. And most of his message has little to do with comforting them in their affliction, but challenging them to live in a holy fashion. What I wanna do is back up and look at this passage from what I think is a, is a biblically, theologically responsible way of looking at all of the Bible. 
I don't know if you've thought about this before, but if you look at the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation, every single passage, every single verse, every single pericope, every single paragraph can be boiled down to apply either to something about your relationship with God, something about your relationship with an unbeliever, or something about your relationship with a believer. Now, some may say, well, there's also your relationship with the demons and angels. There's some ancillary talk uh, 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 verses about that, but we're not given a lot of instructions on how to be buddies with, with the angels. It's basically God, believers, and unbelievers. How do you have proper relationships with them? So we're gonna take that as our outline and overlay it on these verses and see a very, very congruent way of thinking theologically about this new year. Let's look together at three ways Christians should impress the world. Now, when you look at the word impress, you think maybe show off or make an, no, impress means to, to make an impact on. If you're gonna impress a, a seal on the stamp, uh, on the wax and stamp it, it makes an impression. It's the cause and effect relationship that you have on others. That's what I mean by impression. The first is, beginning in verse eight, by our attitudes with believers. Our attitudes with believers. He says, first of all, to sum up, all of you, all of you. He's talking to believers, the ones he's addressing, and he's saying, previously, I've talked to some slaves, some masters, I've talked to some in the governing official categories and kings, and I've talked to those who are gonna be submissive to them. I've talked to husbands, and I've talked to wives. Now I'm just catching you, all of you, everyone in the church. Then he begins listing an attitude, a list of attitudes, rather, that we should have toward believers. He says, first of all, let's look at harmony. All of you be harmonious. The Greek word is like-minded. For those of us who love and follow Jesus our Lord, we are called to cultivate and exercise our gifts and graces in conjunction with other believers. The great American myth is that Christianity can be lived in isolation and that you don't need the church and the church doesn't need you. I've been around the world and outside of maybe Europe, which is largely a post-Christian context, most people get this. You go to Africa where there's extreme persecution of believers in the secular uh, uh, worldview and sometimes the animistic worldview of the, the witch doctor up in rural Africa is impressing on the culture. When Christians get together, they don't have to be told, you have a relationship with each other that's important. Go to northern Siberia where I've been and seen Christians who will walk six miles in 30 below zero temperature to come and be with other Christians. Some who come an hour before church, leaving at five in the morning to get to church by six, to have a cup of tea and sing spontaneously with other believers because they so want the fellowship. Be harmonious, like Mind to think like each other. You cannot do that unless we know each other. 
It also means that there's a certain amount of agreement, like-minded. We're thinking theologically together. We're thinking socially together. We're thinking harmoniously. And I think it would be fair for me to say, in our world, and can I just beg you, I, I try not to have pastoral rants, but can I just have a few seconds? Christian disagreements should not be worked out, especially in the body of Christ, especially in a local church, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email, and text messaging. Tone can't be perceived. Graciousness can't be exhibited. When we're in the church loving each other, like-mindedness develops by being with each other face-to-face. We think about how technologically advanced we are over Paul's day. Maybe, maybe we're not. Maybe they had an advantage over us in that they worked things out by getting together. Look for a minute over at one book back at James chapter 3. This is talking about directing uh, or drawing wisdom from God from above. And we, we look at this passage for the wisdom that it imparts and the uh, exhortation to wisdom. But look how it climaxes. James 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior in his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Wisdom is gentle. A truly wise man or a truly wise woman exercises gentleness. But if you have bitter, jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be, he calls it what it is, arrogant, and so lie against the truth. This, is wisdom, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is, listen, pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, Without hypocrisy, verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Making peace is a way that you come to be like-minded with one another. Our body here at Mission Road should be like-minded. It is perfectly okay, acceptable, and expected to disagree. It is not okay to resolve those those conflicts, resolve those things that we don't share a like-mindedness with without relationship, face-to-face, one-on-one, not through anyone else. A second attitude he highlights is sympathy. Sympathy. Um, Sympathes in the Greek. It's exactly a transliteration of what we get uh, by being tender-hearted. Causes us to identify with someone. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. It means that you care enough about other believers to feel life as they feel life. True care. Beyond Sundays, beyond the prayer chain. True care in Christ's local body in which he's placed you and me for the purpose of not only being like-minded but also being sympathetic, which means we experience life as others do and with others. 
I was visiting someone in the hospital this week. My wife and I were privileged to be able to go and share some time in a, in a hospital room with someone. And as we were leaving, it, it, having this passage being rattled around in my brain, it, it, was, it was convicting to me that I left the hospital room and went back into life without that suffering. I, I left that situation course you have to to get on with life but should our minds and our hearts our sympathies really ever leave our brothers and sisters who are in a place of discouragement or suffering or need if you want to know very uh, candidly one of the things I'm praying for for our church this week is that we are a sympathetic church Sympathy means that you feel life as another feels life. When they're happy, we're happy with them. And when they're sad, we're sad with them. That leads naturally to the next, fraternity. It says you're brotherly. It means to love each other as brothers. Philadelphia, city of brotherly Love, Philadelphia, right? This is the word. You're to have brotherly love for one another. In other words, we see, get this, our family in the body of Christ as precious to us as our own blood and flesh. We have a relationship with one another where God is our father and we're each other's siblings. I remember having a, uh, a feud is a, is a wrong word, an ongoing disagreement with someone not, not long after I was converted and I was in high school and there was a, another guy in the youth ministry and I just, yeah, I just didn't like him. I didn't wanna be around him. I'm pretty sure he didn't like me either. And I remember our youth pastor getting us together and uh, uh, dealing with two proud young men, one far more proud than the other, that guy knows me, um, and just saying, you you both love the Lord, right? Absolutely. You're both converted, right? Absolutely. You're both gonna go to heaven, right? And he said, did you know that you're gonna spend eternity with each other? Now, as a young believer, that was a new thought for me. And my first thought was, yeah, but he's gonna be way on the other side of heaven. No. Brotherly kindness means we, God chooses our siblings. You don't choose your siblings, God chooses them. And he does so for your own sanctification. So many of the things that irritate us about people in the church are not so that we can be irritated in sin. They're so that we can see what needs to be corrected in our own hearts and shepherd them to a greater image of Christ as well. Next, kindness. Kindness. It means to be emotionally connected Splankna in the Greek. It means to feel things in your stomach. You have kindness that comes out of actual emotional connection with other people. You're kind because you love, not because you have to. How do we get that kind of motivation to be this compassionate, to be this kind hearted, to be nice to other believers? because we understand how nice and kind God was to us in Christ. Next, humility, a humble spirit. 
means having a low opinion of yourself in light of the importance of others. This is not low self-esteem. It's godly love and consideration of others as more important than you. No person has ever suffered from low self-esteem. No person. And people who tell you that they do suffer from the the fact that they don't believe you esteem them as much as they esteem themselves. That's low self-esteem. Ephesians 5 says, every man loves himself. I would take God at his word on that. The issue here is to treat others more importantly than you treat yourself. You know, this is so perfectly pictured in most of you as mothers. We've beat this illustration to death, but it's a good illustration. There's one piece of apple pie left and mom and her six-year-old son come to the table. She wants that apple pie and the son says, I want that apple pie and she's suddenly not hungry. That's a great illustration. And that's exactly what humility is. Treating others as more important than yourself, usually at sacrifice to your own desires. Can you think of what Kansas City would believe about you and me and our church if we acted this way toward each other? The world would notice. John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 3, 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 1 John 4, 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, John says, he's a liar. Wow. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I was uh, discipled early on as a believer by uh, a man whose um, Christianity was, was wonderful, but he was an icebreaker. And uh, I remember very distinctly him saying something like this to me. I said, man, I can't stand so-and-so. Now, I was a young punk. And I said, I can't stand so-and-so. He says, well, then you're not a Christian. What? And he took me to this verse. How can you hate your brother who you've seen? If, if, how can you love God who you've not seen if you hate your brother who you have seen? And I remember thinking in the spur of the moment, well, that can't mean what it says. There's, there's gotta be some other interpretation. Now, it's pretty clear. If you're a grudge holder, you better be a grudge repenter or you might not end up in heaven That's how serious this is. John says it's impossible to hate your brother and love God simultaneously. The second way that Christians make an impression on the world is not only our attitude toward believers, between believers, but also our our reactions to unbelievers. Now he changes at verse nine. He says, not returning evil for evil. And you say, well, how do you know that's an unbeliever? Insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. If you look back over at similar language in verse 21 of chapter two, you've been called for this purpose since Christ who suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Wow. Committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. In the shadow of that, Peter now says, 
you should act that way to those who act this way to you. And the inference is obviously these are unbelievers. First thing he says is have an attitude of a reaction rather of non-retaliation. Verse nine, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. There is an assumption here that unbelievers will give us evil actions and intents and will insult us. Revenge is the guiding principle of fleshly morality. Just look at Greek mythology. It is dominated by a hopeless cycle of vengeance. I'm gonna kill you because you killed someone that I love. Then someone's gonna kill me because I killed someone they love. Then someone's gonna kill them. And it goes on and on and on. That's the, current, the common theme of all Greek and Roman theology and mythology. Entertainment is designed to make us want the bad guy to get it, is it not? Just watch an hour-long drama. They're, they're really predictable. For 40 minutes, you spend time, the, the, the director spent time making you really want the bad guy to get it. For 10 minutes, the bad guy really gets away with it. In the last 10 minutes, he gets it. Peter says, you know what? Believers don't return evil for evil. They're non-retaliators. Now flip back over very quickly to Romans chapter 12. Looking at this new year, you are sure, surely going to be mistreated and insulted, have evil committed against you by an unbeliever at some point. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Wow. Wow. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Same thing Peter said. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. There's humility that Peter says. Do not be wise in your own estimation. You can't live life on your own counsel. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone on the freeway. I'm sorry. Um, I was reading the Rick Holland version. <laughs> Never pay back evil for evil to who? To who? Anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For his written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, instead of having vengeance, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then he says, finally, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is such dense theological truth. Our actions are rooted in who God is for us. Our actions are rooted in Christ, what Christ has done for us. Praxis, practical living, flows from theology, thinking rightly about God and his word. And you know what? It's really hard to fight someone who doesn't fight back. By trusting God's vengeance on the cross, 
we find our own resolution. You realize God will judge every human in the world either at the cross or in hell. It's not ours to have judgment come to them. We don't have to make sure that people get it. God, God will be sure that their entire, every sin they've ever committed will be punished either in his son on the cross or in hell forever. You and I don't need to make sure that they get what they deserve in this life. Look at the gospel reality down the page, verse 18. I call this Peter's John 3.16. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Because we believe that, because we believe that, we don't have to return evil for evil or insult for insult. I knew a man who was very dear to me, loved Christ as much as anyone I've ever known. I was with him in a ministry context somewhere where someone was very, being very rude to him and they were disagreeing with him. And basically standing down front in front of a group of people said, said you know, you, you're the most arrogant theologian I've ever met. And, and I wanted to say, well, no, he's not. No, I didn't say that. His response was priceless. He says, wow, you know, you, you may be right and I want to work on that, but you have no idea how much worse I am than what you just said. And the, the, the guy couldn't say anything. What do, you say, what do you say then? Well, I'm sure you are, and let's talk about that. If we have a realistic view that we're not going to return an insult for an insult and evil for evil, it's amazing what that does to those who want to do us evil and want to insult us. Instead, we give a benediction, a blessing. He says further on in verse nine, but be giving a blessing instead, instead of casting insults, returning evil, we are a blessing. We want the best for them. For you were not called, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. The idea here is you inherit the blessing of God and you are a blessing to others. You give what God has given you. You become what God has made you to be. The point is to return evil with kindness and grace and humility and goodness will melt the hearts of a persecutor and abuser and pave our way into glory in a far calm way. Oh, not everyone responds well. We learned from James that unbiblical wisdom is demonic. I don't think the demons respond to biblical living in a gracious way. But we can respond and have control of our responses when we can't control others. So we've dealt with believers and unbelievers. You would expect now that Peter would say, what about God? What about God? How can we impress the world by our responses to God? Now, in order to do this, let's look at what Peter is doing uh, he's verse, basically quoting Psalm 34, 12 to 16 in verses 10 and 11. And the first thing he points to is the ground of God's blessing. Understand the ground, the groundwork, the foundation of God's blessing. Verse 10, for the one who desires life, that doesn't mean to live instead of die. It's the abundant life. It's the rich life. It's to enjoy life. 
How do we know that? The next phrase says, to love and see good days. Who wants to live the good life? Must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That flows right out of um, not returning evil and insults. If you want to live the good life that Psalm 34 describes, if you want to be a blessing, if you want to desire the good life, then a response to God is to act like him with the people who are persecuting us. Where do you get that? Right across the page. We just read it. Verse 21, chapter two. Christ did not act against those who were persecuting him, but instead he was a blessing. Verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, live righteousness, to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. God will bless those who desire to enjoy the richness of life, but they have to meet the qualifications, and the first qualification of enjoying him is to control our speech with others. Verse 11, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Another condition for employing the good life, the blessed life, the abundant life that God gives is to turn away from evil and to do good. This is not just the evil that people are doing to us, but it's our own moral and ethical choices. I mean, you're gonna be making some, I think, probably some ideas about living differently in the coming year. Can I ask you a penetrating question? Is there a sinful habit in mind or deed, in relationship or otherwise? Is there a sinful habit that you can clearly identify that you want to bring to the cross and experience forgiveness for and bring to God to ask him for repentance that you can get traction on that in the coming year? Turn away from evil. Turn away from evil and then the collateral, that's the put off, the put on, and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is indescript. Peace with God, obviously. Peace with others, obviously. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. How do we know this is really focusing in on God? Because next we see the details of God's blessing. The details of God's blessing. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Our living horizontally has a, a corresponding relationship with our worship vertically. He uses an anthropomorphic Descriptions of God here, the Lord has eyes and the Lord has ears. This is always a fun question. Does the, eyes, does, does the Lord have eyes or ears? And people will say, no, he doesn't. And if you're talking about God the Father, you'll be right. But Jesus had eyes and ears. We saw them both function. Here he's talking about the eyes and the ears of the Lord indicating that God sees and God hears. Psalm 139, he can see when it's dark. He can hear when it's quiet. Nothing escapes him. 
The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. A chronicler said he searches the whole world to look for those whose heart is completely his, the righteous. Let this encourage you. When you're doing what's right before the Lord, even if no one sees, even if no one knows, God does. God does. His ears attend to their prayer. God hears our prayers. He's never so busy in another part of the world that he doesn't give 100% full focus, penetrating attention to his blood-bought church. And the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is gonna take care of those who do evil. You don't have to worry about that. Fox News is not gonna help your sanctification if you watch it to see that the bad guys get clobbered and the good guys win because those aren't really descriptions of the good and bad guys according to God, but that's another sermon. God's eyes and God's ears respond to our lives. Think about that. God responds to what he sees and what he hears in the intricacies of our life, in the details, in every detail. And the wrath of God awaits those who do evil. The Lord is against those who do evil. It's not ours to say, I can't wait till they fry in hell. It's ours to say, let's rescue them from certain judgment through the gospel. Look down again at verse 18. Christ died for sins. The just for the unjust. We sang it earlier. His wounds for mine. He took our sin, your sin. He took it on himself and he died for it. Don't let those words be so familiar that they lose their impact. He suffered and died for what you did wrong and offers his righteousness to those who embrace him by faith and believe that he did what the cross really is explained to have done. For some, I can't help but wonder if your New Year's resolution ought to be to become a child of God. You've been running from your conscience. You've been running in your heart. You've been stiff-arming God. You've been postponing maybe someday. Don't let someday be tomorrow. My fear for those who don't know Christ is, is obviously extended to those who don't know the gospel. My greatest fear for those who don't know Christ is the indictment in, in uh, Matthew chapter seven where he says, many, many will come on that day. They'll get all the way to the judgment thinking they're saved. Can you imagine this? Getting all the way to the throne room thinking they're going into heaven and being turned back and into hell where he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Their answer is, well, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we do, do, do? And he says, no, I never knew you. I wasn't the issue in your life. I wasn't the focus of your life. 
We read earlier in our scripture reading, Paul says, oh, that I may know him, Christ, the power of his resurrection, that he's alive, that he's relatable, that he's, he's actually alive and able to converse with us. He talks to us through his word. We release our souls to him in prayer. And do you know Christ? And if you don't, would you, would you embrace him today? If it would help, and I got on my knees and begged you, would you stop and think, I need to be right with God and I can't be. But Christ can be for me. There is no better resolution in any part of the year that anyone could ever make than that. Please, please, please do the hard business of self-evaluation and knowing the condition of your soul. There's no other decision that's more important than that. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray and Bob will close our service and our prayer room will be open. We say this week in and week out. If you're, if you're used to hearing this, would you just hear it fresh? We've made elders available there who would love to talk to you about your heart, your soul. Lunch is not that important. If the Lord is convicting your heart, if the Lord is making you ask hard questions, please don't leave the building. Please, please don't leave the building without stopping to do the soul work and the business with God that his cross can only do for you.